0: In September of 2003, I arrived at a university in Western Pennsylvania as a, a new graduate student in physical therapy. I had graduated three months prior from undergrad with a science background uh, and a love for sports. And so I, I came to Slippery Rock University in Western Pennsylvania to study physical therapy studies. And I came hungry for community. Having come to faith through InterVarsity Christian Fellowship just two years prior and being nurtured in that community, equipped in that community, given ministry opportunities through that campus ministry, I just had a love and appreciation for, for genuine gospel community. And so, one of the first things that I wanted to do was plug into a similar fellowship, a similar campus ministry at my new grad school. And so, you know how it is when you start school, a new place, new city, new friends, new classmates. I mean, you're just you're looking for a friend. And, and hopefully, if you're a Christian, a friend who shares your faith. And so I remember the orientation week as a physical therapy student, meeting this guy named Casey, who seemed kind, warm, engaged. He never talked about Christianity or anything like that, but he just there, there's something compelling about Casey. That week was over. The following week, I I did some research and found that there's a chapter of what was then called Campus Crusade for Christ. It's now called Crew, And they had a midweek student gathering. You could go and sing songs and hear a message and build relationships with others. And so I go. I arrived late on a Thursday night to to their gathering. And I had my Bible with me. I go. I sit down. There's a seat up front. There's a a lot of students there. It was encouraging. And I turn around behind me. And who's there but Casey? And my heart was just warmed with gratefulness to God because he was beginning to surround me with a new community in my new place. And there just had a greater appreciation for the gift and the encouragement that comes through Christian community. And as we continue our series in the book of Acts, that's our focus this morning, the gift and the encouragement of Christian community. So let's turn our Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 28. In the Bibles we've provided on your chairs, you can find Acts 28, I believe, on page 937. Let's turn there together. If you're here this morning and you need a copy of the Scripture... Um, We have hard-back black cover Bibles right there in the lobby on one of the bookshelves. You feel free to grab one of those. If you have a friend who maybe needs a Bible, you can take one of those. We love to give those Bibles away. The gift, the encouragement of Christian community. That's what we'll see here. Verses 11 through 16 in Acts 28. Luke is the author here. He's also the traveling companion of Paul at this stage in the book of Acts. So he's an eyewitness to these events. Luke writes, verse 11, After three months, we set sail in a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria, with the twin gods as a figurehead. Putting in at Syracuse, we stayed there for three days. And from there, we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day, a south wind sprang up, and on the second day, we came to Putioli. There we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. And so we came to Rome. And the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the forum of Appius and three taverns to meet us. On seeing them, Paul thanked God and took courage. And when we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldier that guarded him. Now, The main idea, the main thrust of this sermon is that Christian community is a gift from God and it encourages people. Christian community is a gift from God and it encourages people. Three sections that I'd like to walk through. Here's the first. Calm seas and smooth travel. That's what we see here first in Acts 28, verses 11, 12, and 13. Something markedly different than what you've heard the last two weeks as two of our elders, Alex Grant, Dave Raffensberger preached the portions of Acts 27 and 28. It had been anything but calm and anything but smooth, Paul's voyage to Rome. But here, the last leg of the journey, we find something quite different. Luke tells us, after three months, we set sail on a ship and had wintered in the island. That is the island of Malta. A ship of Alexandria originated in the North African port city of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead putting in at Syracuse a city in Sicily. We stayed there for three days. And from there we made a circuit and arrived at Regium. And after one day a south wind sprang up. And on the second day we came to Putioli. So in two, three short verses... Luke guides us along a 300-plus-mile voyage, roughly a, a third of the total journey, maybe a little bit less, but it's smooth and it's fast. But you compare that to the first part of chapter 28 and all of chapter 27, it was turbulent and near disaster as Paul and company sail westward across the Mediterranean Sea in inclement Weather. So Luke is, is drawing our attention here to just God's kindness, his favor, in taking his servant Paul to Rome, which is what he had promised to do. And this leg of the journey is, is smooth. The sea is calm. They arrive in Malta, being shipwrecked on the on the reef or a kind of a sandbank there, and their ship is just beat to pieces. They grab boards and float to Malta, and there they stay three months. So it's likely March, AD 60 is where we're at. They've stayed three months, spent the winter, seas are calmer, and then they set forth. And so we have a map here. This will just help you visualize. Anytime you're studying Acts, it's it's helpful to just break out. If you have a study Bible or the map at the back of your Bible, really helpful to see here. So... This is where Alex and Dave kind of gave us the journey here. They, they leave during late in the season. Not a super wise time to be out in the seas. A nor'easter, we know what those are, came and just blew their ship westward. And it's wrecked here some, somewhere along a reef near Malta. They get on pieces of boards and, and broken up parts of the ship, and they arrive in this island, Malta. They're there for three months. They find another ship that originated from Alexandria, and they're able to make the voyage here to this east coast city of Sicily. It's called Syracuse. It's three days there. We're not told if Paul gets off the ship. We don't know. And they go to the toe of the boot of Italy, Regium. And there's a six-mile strait, a little waterway between Sicily and Italy, the boot there, and the captain waits for a south wind that pushes them right through the strait and on upward to Putioli. And so it's about 300 miles, Luke tells us, in just a few short verses. They go from Malta to Putoli. The rest of this journey has been disastrous and, and turbulent, but here it's calm and smooth. So that's where, that's where we are as we look at verses 11, 12, and 13 in Acts 28. Calm seas smooth travels. In this section, Luke shares a detail that you might pass over and might consider insignificant. Verse 11, Luke shares this detail. After three months, we set sail on a ship that had wintered in the island, a ship of Alexandria with the twin gods as a figurehead. Why does Luke include the twin gods as a figurehead or an insignia or an emblem on the ship? Why would he do that? Well, number one, he's writing history. This is historical narrative. And so this detail speaks to the historicity of the text. It really was a ship that originated from Alexandria and had this emblem or insignia that shows us the religious climate that these people lived in, that Paul ministered in. A ship that had the twin gods as a figurehead. Now, these are Zeus's twin sons, Castor and Pollux, two twins born of a relationship he had with his mistress, Leda. Castor and Pollux were considered the patron god of seafarers, the protective gods of sailors, and so they put this insignia at the front of the boat as a way to demonstrate their trust in the protection of these two gods. That's why Luke includes this detail. He's giving us a window into the religious climate the people of the day. What they trusted in was visible. Paul lived and moved and ministered among a culture Where people trusted in false gods. People sought security and protection from things that could not provide security and protection, things that left them empty and unsatisfied. That's what Luke is showing us here. This is the religious climate that Paul ministered in. Now, I wonder if in our day we are aware of the religious climate that we live and move and minister among. In a similar way, we look around, all around us, we see emblems and insignias, public displays of what people in our culture trust in. For security, for satisfaction, for meaning. And friends, we know that these things leave them, they leave us when we trust in them, empty titles, possessions, luxury and convenience, the perceived power of technology, the mirage of social media, people putting their best foot forward, hiding what really is going on, political rhetoric, images of beauty. What are those emblems and insignias all around us that are revealing what people in our culture trust in, what they turn to. I just wonder, as Paul sailed on the ship with this two-headed figure of Castor and Pollux, like my guess is it motivated him to pray for the people on the boat who were trusting in those less-than-God realities. And so it is with us, as you operate, as you go to work, as you go to the store, you read the line, the checkout line, and this, these airbrushed men and women of beauty in, in, on those magazines. like it's, it's, it's a mirage. It's false hope. It doesn't give meaning. May it move us to pray for people in our culture. We live amongst men and women, teens, children who are trusting in false gods. May it move us to pray, move us to minister, to reach out in a compelling and loving way with the gospel for people who are desperate for Jesus and don't know it. That's what Luke is drawing our attention to the religious climate that Paul ministered in. Calm seas and smooth travel. Paul and company arrive in the port city of Puteoli, the closest port to the city of Rome. So you can imagine how many ships come and dock there. Closest port. To the city of Rome. And here in Putioli, we arrive at our second section: Christian community found in a faraway place. That's what we see here. Christian community found in a faraway place. Let's look together at verse 14. Luke says, We came to Putioli, there we found brothers and were invited to stay with them for seven days. Now, if maybe you're new to reading the Bible, our translation, the ESV, often has this word brothers. Don't think like homeboys or dudes clubs. This is, this is men and women. Brothers, kind of as the old, like KJV brethren, it speaks of men and women Christians in local churches, right? That's what this is. These are men and women. The Christian community receives them and invites them to stay with them for seven days. Now, Again, if we're reading fast, we might miss what Luke is showing us here. There's Christian community in Italy, which if you're from Jerusalem, Italy is like the ends of the earth, sort of that that far bound of the Roman Empire. The gospel has moved and radiated outward all the way to what was thought of then as the ends of the earth earth. There's Christian community there. It's AD 60. Jesus died roughly 29, 30, 31, 80. So so in in less than 30 years, the gospel has gone from its hub in Jerusalem outward, outward, outward to the ends of the earth. This is in fact a mini-fulfillment of Jesus' words at the very beginning of Acts, Acts chapter 1, verse 8. Jesus says to his disciples, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We started our series in Acts about a year ago. It was August 29th, 2021. And as we unpacked Acts chapter 1 verse 8, we talked about how that verse is an outline for the book of Acts. You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, one circle outward Judea, another circle outward Samaria, and then a big circle outward the ends of the earth. And as you follow Acts, the narrative traces that very geographic pattern. So Acts 2, Peter proclaims the gospel on the day of Pentecost right there in Jerusalem, and 3,000 people come to faith in Christ. And as you continue to just track through Acts, suddenly the gospel's moving into Samaria, Acts chapter 8 with Philip. And then it gets outward among the Gentiles in the Roman Empire that Paul's planting churches among, Acts chapter 14 and following. And as you approach the end of the book of Acts, where are we? Rome. What's significant about Rome? It was the known ends of the earth. a first century Jew or Christian in Jerusalem. The gospel has gone according to Jesus' plan and geography. Exactly as he said. Acts 1.8, that's the outline of the book of Acts. That's where we find ourselves and that's where Christians are here 60 A.D. Jesus can be taken at his word. What he says will come to pass. His word is moving forward as planned. Take heart. Be encouraged. No matter what your ministry says and the hardness of the soil, and the di- God is moving his mission forward. It will go forth to every tribe, nation, and tongue. The enduring word of Jesus Christ, what he says, will come to path. So it is today. In a larger fulfillment, that's a little mini-fulfillment, that was the known world. Now we understand the breadth of the world and the reality of people groups, pockets, populations of people that have little to no access to the gospel, unreached people groups, Jesus says, Mark chapter 13, verse 10, the gospel must first be proclaimed to all nations and then the end will come. Jesus says no one knows the day or the hour except the Father in heaven. But he gives us signs of the end of times, right? Wars and rumors of wars, pestilence, division, people brought before governors, a lot of what we're seeing right now, frankly. We, we don't exactly know, but we think we need to identify the signs of the times. One thing we do know is the gospel must first be proclaimed to the nations, every tribe, nation, and tongue. So that's what we do know. He's not going to come back until the gospel is going outward somehow, some way, being proclaimed among the nations. We have a role in that. Praying, giving of our resources, going ourselves on short-term and long-term missions. In two weeks, we'll have Greg King here who's serving in Vienna, Austria, a place where there's native Austrians who speak German and a ton of Turkish immigrants, one of the least reached people groups in the world. He's seeking to do church planting and theological education among those groups. What part do we play in seeing the gospel proclaimed to all the nations? God's given us that privilege and that responsibility. So we see a mini fulfillment here in Acts 28, and we're reminded of the larger fulfillment that is currently unfolding as the gospel just moves forward, as local churches send missionaries, as we pray fervently, give of our resources, and go ourselves. Verse 14, there in Puteoli, Paul found brothers who were invited, who invited them to stay with them for seven days. What a blessing. Generous, hospitable people opened their home to Paul, Luke, and others to stay with them. It is the blessing, this blessing of gospel hospitality that we turn to now. So we see calm seas and smooth travel. Christian community found in a faraway place. Thirdly and finally, the gift and encouragement of Christian community. The gift and encouragement of Christian community. Verses 15 and 16, Luke says, so we came to Rome, and the brothers there, when they heard about us, came as far as the Forum of Appius and Three Taverns to meet us. People are eager to see Paul and company. As they hear him approaching Rome, word spreads, and there's these two stopping points along the Appian Way, which was the main road. Rome was famous for its road building, right? And so one of the main thoroughfares that ran north and south in the boot of Italy was the Appian Way. And as you got close to Rome, a couple stopping points were the Forum of. Appius, it was a marketplace, a shopping place. And then the three taverns, kind of a lodging place. And so people are coming as far as those, those two places, one 43 miles away from Rome, the other 35 miles. People are hearing that Paul has come, and they're flocking to be with him. It shows their heart for him, their love for him. We know that Paul wrote a letter to Christians in Rome, though he had never been there. He wrote that letter in 57 AD, three years prior to his visit there now in Acts 28. And if you look at the end of Romans, there's this extensive section on him speaking to relationships, people who live in Rome. He had an extensive network of relationships and partners. Many of those folks lived in Rome. So though he'd never been there, he'd interfaced with some of them elsewhere in the Roman world, and he wrote To them. He has rich relationships. And so it kind of gives us an idea of like why people are flocking. He he had some relationships though he maybe hadn't seen them in a while or seen them at all. They've only read what he wrote. So they're they're flocking there, they're traveling far and fast to see Paul and his traveling companions. Community, the blessing of community. And on seeing them, Paul thanked God and he took courage. Let's just stop and camp out in this verse. On seeing these people come to him, Paul stopped and he thanked God and he took courage. There is a lot that we can mine out here. What do we learn? Paul thanks God when he sees the Christian community. What does that tell us? Community is a gift from God that when received, we thank him. It's not your doing. We have a part to play. We need to be kind of proactive and pursue people. But at the end of the day, God gives people to people in community to encourage them. So he stops and he thanks. He receives this community as a gift from God. And I wonder, friend, as you think about this local church, if you're a member here, have you received the people in this church as a gift to you? Do you view them as a gift to you? Now, I know. We can irritate one another, but don't let that little, the mess of community overshadow the reality that we are precious gifts to one another. God has given us to one another to help us follow Jesus. That's the nature of church membership. We're simply agreeing, covenanting together that we will help others follow Jesus, and when we're struggling, we're going to come around and support one another. Do you receive your Christian community as a gift in your heart of hearts? Do you believe that? Or would you just rather kind of not be bothered? Let's be honest. Like, how are you apathetic towards your Christian community? Friend, don't, don't, don't. What you're doing is you're distancing yourself from a precious gift that God has given you. Receive it. Lean into it. I know it can be messy. But in the mess, we actually are drawn closer to Christ because he gives us what we need to bear with one another, to forgive one another. You see, it's the gospel of Jesus that creates community. And it's the gospel of Jesus that sustains community when it gets fractured by any number of reasons. So, in the gospel, there's reconciliation with God. We talked about this through the confession. Adam has sung, led us in singing about this. There is forgiveness and reconciliation with sinners and God on the, on the vertical dimension, right? The vertical axis, we have reconciliation with God. But there's also beautiful kind of horizontal reconciliation and a binding together of people on the horizontal axis where we can bear with one another. We can genuinely build healthy relationships with one another because of the power of the gospel. And it's the picture of the cross. Anytime you see a cross, remember, there's a vertical axis, there's a horizontal axis. We're right with God and we can be right with one another. That's the nature of community. The gospel creates it. Jesus saves us into a family. He doesn't save us into a siloed individualism. No, he saves us into a family. And that family helps us follow him for a lifetime. And the way that that's carried out is in local churches. Made right... On the vertical axis, made right on the horizontal axis. The gospel creates community and sustains community when it gets tough, and it will get tough. It has gotten tough over the last couple years, especially. Bear with one another in love by the power of the gospel. So, God gives community. Paul thanks him for it. May we thank him for our community and leverage it to the fullest, receive it as a blessing. And Paul took courage upon seeing those people come to him. He took courage. He was encouraged by the people, by the community. That's the nature of gospel community. It brings an encouragement. Just consider Paul, what he had gone through from Acts chapter 21 all the way through chapter 26, 27, and the first part of 28. It is bleak. He's ambushed by a mob. He's arrested. He's falsely accused, multiple trials. He's in prison for years and he's shipwrecked on his way to Rome. He is experiencing an avalanche of discouragement. He is in need of encouragement. How does God provide it? He surrounds him with brothers and sisters in the faith. And Paul takes courage. Look, I don't know where you are. I know kind of where I am. And my desperate need for encouragement sometimes, friends, that, that comes largely through people in your church who love you, who can speak truth to you, who can come alongside and pray for you. How are you hurting right now? How are you discouraged right now? Would you receive the gift of community? Would you let your, these people here love on you? I know we've had some transitions over this summer. There's some transitions going back, like planning a church, seeing six solid people go. Several other families move on for good reasons this summer. Gosh, you begin to look around and you're like, we need each other. For those who are here, let's, let's lean into one another and support each other, help each other. Paul took courage when he saw that community coming to him. In Rome, Paul enters house arrest. Look with me at verse 16. When we came into Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with a soldier who guarded him. So he's not in a prison. He's in a home or an apartment of some kind, like a private home or a private apartment, with a soldier there guarding the door. He's on house arrest. He has a measure of freedom here, given his Roman citizenship. You see the the, the favor that that God has given him through that citizenship. I want to draw your attention to this question. Whose home does Paul stay in? Would Paul have any appreciable income at this point? He was a tent maker, wasn't he? But the last couple years, he's been in prison and he's been voyaging, right? He's been on trial. He hasn't had the opportunity or the means to make tents to sell. Friends, he is likely staying in some kind soul in the church in Rome who's offered up an apartment. Again, gospel hospitality over and over in this passage. Where he's staying is likely somebody who said, Hey, I got a place, I'm a Christian. And I'm going to use my gifts and resources to bless Paul. So that's likely where he's saying someone in the church in Rome has offered up their apartment or guest house or something, and he receives it, the blessing and the encouragement of gospel hospitality. What resources do you have and how can you leverage those resources for gospel hospitality? It is an incredible way to impact people's lives when you open up what you have for other people. Rosaria Butterfield has written an amazing book on gospel hospitality. The title is worth the book itself. The gospel comes with a house key, subtitled, Practicing Radically Ordinary Hospitality in a Post-Christian World. You kind of hear part of her story and the role of gospel hospitality in drawing Rosaria to God, the role of hospitality in drawing her someone who was far from god she tells the story her story is a staunch unbeliever uh, a prof at syracuse university in literature and women's studies lived and championed a homosexual lifestyle a sharp critic of christianity who was radically converted by the grace of god in 1999 what changed her Was it an evangelistic rally, as helpful and as beneficial as those can be? Was it an apologetics course, as helpful and impactful as those can be? No. What changed her was a kind invitation from a Christian into their modest home for dinner. And not just one, but over and over again. A kind invitation into this home of Christians where for the first time she encountered God, Christ, through his people heard the gospel, saw the gospel embodied, and turned to Christ, repented of her sin and was changed forevermore. The gospel comes with a house key. And we all have the opportunity if we're a believer to practice radically ordinary hospitality in our post-Christian world. Kind invitations. This kind of hospitality, this kind of warmth and welcoming hearts is powerfully attractive in our culture where people are craving belonging and significance and relationship. People in our culture just crave that, and they're looking in all the wrong places to see those needs met. And in the gospel and through hospitality, they can be met. Maybe you're here today, and you don't consider yourself a Christian. We're very thankful that you would come and gather with us. Our local church wants to help you take the next step of understanding and faith towards Christ. And I just want to ask you, would you allow yourself to be invited in? You do have a role in how open or closed you are. Would you be consider receiving an invitation from a Christian in this community, maybe for coffee or for dessert or for dinner or a backyard barbecue in the summer, would you avail yourself to coming in to a person's home in this local church? They would love to do that. And you'll get a picture, imperfect as it is, of the gospel, of the character of Christ. If you are a Christian, can I encourage you to be people who invite others in? I know that there's a lot of insecurity and there's a lot of fear that comes with hosting people. Some of us are gifted at it. Some of us struggle with it. But what I love about her book is it's it's, it's radically ordinary. It doesn't have to be perfect. In fact, when it's imperfect, it's actually more relatable because people get like, my house isn't pristine either. Now, don't let it be crazy messy, but, you know, pick it up a little bit. But people want to see that you're a human being and you're imperfect. And things might be a little disheveled, but invite people in pursue people, especially in this time of, who knows where we are in this old pandemic, right? But people are starved for relationship and for for community. Invite people in if you're comfortable. Invite people in. We still have a few weeks of summer left. What would it look like to invite a collection of Christian friends and non-Christian friends, just your back patio, grill some food, be a a rich time. Maybe you have a a birthday party that you're hosting or a shower or a Super Bowl party next winter. I want you to think strategically about who you invite. Invite a collection of your friends who are both Christian and non-Christian because what happens is, is what Sam Chan calls a plausibility structure. So when you invite your Christian friends with your non-Christian friends, suddenly your non-Christian friends see that it is plausible to be a lawyer or an engineer or a stay-at-home mom or whatever it is that you do here in New England and follow Christ. It's like, whoa, that that person works at Lincoln Lab, or they practice law, and evidently they're a Christian, and they're not too weird. Like, it's a plausibility structure. You, you, You get around people who are like other people in terms of like having a job or you know, living in a neighborhood or having family. Like, it's plausible to be a New Englander and be a Christian. Like Adults need to see that, teens need to see that as well. What is Dylan doing by leading a Sunday gathering twice a month here in this space? Because we have a handful of youth, but as we pull other churches in Greater Boston, suddenly we have 30 or 40 of them in here. The plausibility structure is there. You look around you see other teens who are singing and hearing God's word, they think it's plausible to be a teen and follow Jesus. That's a good thing. That's part of evangelism, plausibility structures, seeing like, ah, oh, I could do that. Now we know it's the grace of God that changes people's hearts, but we, we need structures around us. So when you invite people, invite a mixed population of Christians and non-Christians into your home, in your backyard for a Super Bowl party and watch God do the mix and pray for the people who come. The gospel comes with a house key. Friends, let us seek to practice radically ordinary hospitality in our post-Christian world. Christian community is a gift from God and it encourages and impacts people. May we see it happen here at our church and beyond. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your grace. Thank you for welcoming us, being hospitable to us as sinners through the work of your son, Jesus. Oh, we're desperate for Jesus and for his power and his grace to be worked out in our lives. Open us up, Lord, to be generous and hospitable. Well we know that there's fears and insecurities to, to use those gifts. I pray that you would help us to, to leverage what we have well for the kingdom of God. Thank you for this Christian community and the support, the encouragement that comes to me, to my family, and to all of us as we seek it and pursue it and bear with one another. Encourage our church family. Use us, Lord, to help other churches like Trinity Church in Bedford get started so that people in New England can genuinely experience the beauty of the gospel and the community of his people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.